Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and the message is called Temptation in the Wilderness. We hope you are blessed by the message today. was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to hear from you today. Holy Spirit, teach us. Oh, Father, help us to see your son, Jesus, um, in his glory, and to understand the gospel in our hearts, that we would know exactly what we are intended to know today by reading your word, by gathering in this place. God, do what only you can do. Change us where we need to be changed. God, we worship you. We praise you, God, for your sovereignty, for your protection, for your love, for your holy word. Lord, to be in this place with your people. God, draw hearts to yourself. Bring a work of the spirit that only you can do. Lord, move like the wind. And may we be receptive. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to be with you all again and be in the Word together. I'm so thankful. And um, I want to just say a couple things that aren't really having much to do with the study, but they're certainly, they have a lot to do with the work of the Lord. Maybe, uh, maybe you're aware just because you keep, keep uh, abreast of what's going on in the, in the nation and the culture, but Maybe you've already seen some of the stuff that's happening out in uh, Asbury, Connecticut. How many of you guys have heard the Asbury, Connecticut revival story? Anybody? Very few of you. A couple of you. Unless you're just being shy. <laughs> um, well, there's uh, apparently back in the 70s, something similar happened at a, at, a, at a seminary in Asbury, Connecticut, that a lot of people have, you know, there's always skeptics, and I can be a skeptic as well when it comes to people saying, hey, there's a revival somewhere, and you're like, oh, sure, well, it's just a hyped up thing, whatever. Well, in the 70s, apparently, it was, a, it was a pretty influential thing, moving out into the Jesus movement out west and, um, and a revival that took place. Well, the last five days straight, apparently, there's been uh, quite a stir, something going on at this 
particular Bible school in Asbury, Connecticut, where after a normal chapel service, people didn't want to go home, and people kept coming. And it's been five days straight of worship and prayer and confession and repentance, and people coming from all over the country, actually, um, driving out to this place to see what is the Lord doing there. And um, I, I have some people that I very, really trust that actually have gone out there to investigate with a skeptical mind, and they've come back saying, this is not fake. This is not hype. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to remind you guys, even though we often are like skeptical and we grew up, some of us, in Baptist circles where we tend to be a little bit stoic and we doubt the work of the Holy Spirit, we should not doubt the work of the Holy Spirit. God does move, and we want him to move in ways that we can't explain and that we could not possibly manufacture ourselves. And so that's just made me aware just to be praying, God, move. Holy Spirit, move. Bring, bring believers to repentance, true repentance. So may that be the case with us, I'm not manufacturing anything. I just want to say, be aware and be willing be submissive to the Lord and to his word. And if God moves on your heart today to repent and turn from sin and, and make a, a commitment to him that you've never made before, to just say, I'm going to follow you. I'm laying everything else aside. I'm forsaking my sin. I'm turning from this idolatry that I worship, and I'm going to follow Christ. And may that be the case today. Amen, church? Amen. So let's just do that. And may the word of God, and God's word is so instrumental in true revivals. God's word will be exalted, and Christ will be made center of any true revival. So, that being said, let's just be prayerful about that. But we are our text that we've read, and we're just working through Matthew. If you're new here, we go through books of the Bible as our primary diet in the Word, expositorily through the Scriptures, to hear from God what He says about Him, about us, about the world, about life and salvation. Is God who reveals that to us through His Word. And we're here in Matthew chapter 4, which is right where we left off last week. And the main idea of this text... The main idea, which you probably surmised just from reading it, is that Jesus overcame every temptation of the evil one. Jesus did. The text is full of all sorts of things that we could look at and say, how does this apply to me? And how do, how do I? The, the, the thrust of what Matthew wants us to see, which I think is clear, is that Christ overcame direct temptation from Satan himself. That's the scene before us. It's not normal. We don't, this has never happened to me. I've been tempted. I've never stood toe-to-toe with Satan himself. Most of us haven't. But Christ did, and what do we see? That's the victory, right? So that's the purpose of this whole text, ultimately. So I want to talk about a few things. There's some questions that I hope that are answered as we kind of walk through the text. One is, what is temptation? I think that's good to talk about. Here it is in our text. What is temptation? Number two, who is our adversary? Who is our adversary and the adversary of of God? And then what example did Jesus set for us to overcome temptation? Because there's certainly examples in this account for us to see and to apply to our lives. And then where is God in times of testing? Where is God in times of testing, in times of temptation? So firstly, what is temptation? The Greek word here used in verse 1 can mean, it can mean a time of testing to see if something is genuine. So when we think about tempting, temptation or testing, that's, what this is, that's what's happening here. To see if something is genuine. And we know what happened in the last part of our study, what was just announced and pronounced over Jesus Christ, that he is the anointed king, he's the son of God, and he is ple- God is well pleased with him. 
And here we have now, he's moving into this place and he's in the wilderness. But that's what this word is, is, is meant to mean. It's a time of testing to see if something is genuine. It can also mean an enticement. Not only a, a testing to see if something is genuine, but also can be, based on the context, can be a, an enticement, an allurement, particularly to sin. Now just flip over with me a couple pages further into the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 13 helps us to understand a little bit better what this is saying. James 1, 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's a great process that we see. I'm thankful for James. I'm thankful for the scriptures helping us in the whole counsel of God to understand certain things. Temptation itself is not sin. I think that's one thing that maybe has been that questions ask. Am I, am I sinning if I'm tempted? We, don't, we can't say anywhere in scripture, but I mean, Jesus was tempted and Jesus did not sin. The temptation itself was not sin. And we also are clarifying from James that God is not the one who tempts Directly, He doesn't bring about temptation in the life of a believer. But it is when a person lays hold of what his or her flesh was enticed by, that's when it becomes sin. When you lay hold of it, then sin is birthed, and James says it ultimately leads to death. That's important for us to know as Christians. The process of temptation, the beginning of, of what happens and how the enemy will often work in our lives is to tempt us and the world tempts us and things that you crave can be a temptation, but what do you do that very next moment? Do you lay hold of that thing that your flesh desires? And temptation is real for all of us. I think we can just lay that out there. It's absolute. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have some sort of temptation in their life, particularly that enticement to sin, or something that God is doing to prove the genuineness of your faith. You think about how Satan tempted or tested Job, but it was ultimately the sovereign God that gave him permission, and that was a test of genuineness. Have my servant Job. You cannot take his life. And Satan was given permission to do that. But the permission was from God, because God is sovereign. God ultimately rules and reigns. And because temptation is real for all of us, it's all the more reason for us to look to Christ in these scriptures to see Jesus as the overcomer. Christ, the one who overcame temptation. So before we look at what Jesus does, there are important, important things to know about the enemy. In just these 11 verses, we see the tempter, we see the devil, and we see Satan. All the same person. This is what he's called in these 11 verses. The tempter comes to Jesus. He's called the devil, and he's given the name Satan at the end of, the, at the end of this text. The tempter is pretty self-explanatory. He is the one who is enticing us to sin. He's certainly involved in it. I wouldn't say that Satan himself, as an individual spirit being, is behind every temptation in your life. If you go that way, you're, you're going to go into a, some pretty messy rabbit trails, right? 
He's not directly behind every, he's, he's not omnipresent. Let's just get that out there. Satan is a created being. He can only be at one place at one time. And he depends fully on demonic influences to do his work. But the tempter is the one who draws us away and seeks to pull us into sin. The devil simply means false accuser. He's a slanderer. We know that about our enemy. That's who he is. He is a false accuser and he is a slanderer. And then Satan. What is, what is Satan? He's the inveterate adversary of God and Christ. He is the forever, has always been and will always be. Remember as kids, you ask, well, can't Satan be forgiven? Well, why can't Satan be redeemed? Satan is the forever adversary of God. That's who he is. He has no desire to repent. There will never be repentance for Satan, and we do not need to feel bad for him. Scripture does not give us any place to wish for the redemption of Satan. He is the enemy of God and forever has been and forever will be. And he is the one that's seeking to draw the church away from Christ and to lure everyone as far as he can to look away from Christ and to worship him. So those three things, the tempter, the devil, and Satan. So just for a moment, let me just speak on this for just a moment. Do you get your understanding of Satan solely from the media or from God's word? I think that's really important, especially in the age that we live in, in the day that we live in. Oftentimes our fears are manipulated and changed and, and formed based on whether we are getting our information from God's word or from any other source, from the media, from the news, from some other person. And let me just tell you, Satan has gotten a lot of airtime these days. And I have to say, and maybe you're in this same boat, but if you take your eyes off of Christ and his word, you begin to wonder a little bit and worry a little bit and say, what is this? What's happening? Is how powerful is he? Is he manipulating the entire world? Do we need to be afraid as Christians? Next thing you know, you're thinking of these things that are not based on God's word, where God is sovereign and has power over Satan, but you're thinking from a human perspective and because he is the prince of the power of the air and he is the, the God of this age, certainly we see him in many times front and center and how he's working through the, the world and we can be filled with fear. But don't be ignorant of his devices. He is a deceiver. Amen. Scripture tells us to not be ignorant of his devices. He is real. Satan is real. I think this text, if anything, it shows us the reality of Satan Standing there with Christ in the wilderness, an actual being confronting the God of the universe. And don't think for a moment that God was not in control here. All of this was on purpose. All of this had a sovereign purpose behind, behind it. But there's a real spiritual battle. Remember, there is a real spiritual battle, but remember, it is not against flesh and blood. It is against, it's against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Let's look at this for a moment. Look at the timing of the temptation. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If you go back just a moment, you can see that the previous text, what was surrounding this temptation? What was the timing? It was after a great blessing. Think about the, the, the circumstance that Christ is in here. 
He just comes up out of the water. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit is descending upon him like a dove. And the voice of the Father affirms the blessing upon Christ. The anointing. You are king. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in the very next moment, it says, Then Jesus was led by who? By the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The circumstance around this temptation is after a great blessing. Also, a time of hunger and a time of seeking the Father. Look at what it says. And after 40 days, verse 2, after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came to him and then said to him. So it was a time of great hunger but a purposeful, intentional hunger of Christ. This is a beautiful example, is it not? Jesus Christ giving himself wholly to seeking the Father, even making himself weak in a time of fasting. This, his ministry is about to begin. He's been anointed as king here, in this, coming up out of the water. And his ministry is about to begin, and the kingdom is, is at hand, he said. He's going to begin to, repeat, to, to preach repentance, for the kingdom is coming. And it is near. And in this time of weakness, the tempter comes in that moment. Don't be caught off guard. I was just talking to a brother this morning about this. Isn't that the reality? That when we let off the gas and we stop pursuing Christ and we make things easy in the world's standards, the enemy will let you go. You begin to pursue God. You put yourself in a place of seeking after him wholeheartedly and you will be tempted. And the devil will seek to, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? That the deceiver doesn't want you to pursue Christ. Why? Because Christ is the overcomer. We have such clear lines drawn for us, but he is a deceiver. Everything that comes from the mouth of the enemy is a lie. And a half-truth is a lie. And so he comes with this temptation. So we're going to just work through these, three of them. There's three temptations. Temptation number one comes in verse three. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first temptation is tempted to gratify self. Tempted to gratify self. Now this was not a new lie. This is an age-old lie. That's one thing to know about our enemy. He doesn't come up with new things. He's a reinventor. He's not a creator. He's a manipulator and a liar. So this wasn't anything new. A temptation to gratify self. Now here's the thing. There are good human desires that become sin when they become more important than Christ. Good human desires, thirst and hunger and pleasure and friendship and success, those are not ungodly sinful things in and of themselves, but every one of you and I, whoever, when we place those things as, more, as superior, as more important than Christ, and we do those in order to gratify ourselves, that's when they become sin. And that is, in a sense by this allurement, by this stone that he's being asked to turn into bread, that is ultimately what he's saying to, to Christ. Gratify yourself in this time of hunger. Here you are hungry. 
You are the Son of God, aren't you? Remember your power? Remember with a word you could speak and turn these stones into bread. And you're hungry. Gratify yourself. At the heart of this temptation, that the lie is the lie that God is simply not enough. And Christ in his human form, this is something we are to see, that Jesus is showing us something about his humanity here. The level at which he is confronted by Christ. And that there was, we have to, I mean, it was a temptation. There, there was something there. There was a, there was a tempting there to turn the, bre- turn the stones into bread. Gratify yourself. Just eat. But at the heart of it was to say that God is simply not enough. Your father is not enough. It's the same as in the garden. And how easy would it have been for Christ to turn those stones into bread? And it's the same lie that was in the garden. Has God really said? Is he truly enough? If you don't eat of this fruit and you simply trust in God, is that going to be enough? No. Eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and your eyes will be opened to see. You will see. Seeing God isn't enough. Walking with God is not enough. And that's the lie of the enemy. And so how does he fight the temptation? He fights the temptation with Scripture. He fights it with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. Let me read it for you. The whole command that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swear to give, swore to give you by his fathers, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Notice where Israel is, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that an incredible place to quote from? In this time of temptation, Jesus is in the desert, he's in the wilderness, and he's face-to-face with the enemy, and he says, turn these, bread, turn these stones to bread, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3, I will not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. What is he saying there? God's word for your soul is of more value than bread for your body. God's word for your soul, brothers and sisters, is more valuable than bread for your body. Now just think for a moment, as a human being, how much do you value human hunger sustenance? How much do you value filling your belly? It's pretty important. And Jesus is saying, it is far less important than what God's word is for your soul. He's not minimizing food. What he's doing is he's strengthening our view of what God says. And that's how we need to be as Christians. What does God say? What is he saying? Not what does my flesh crave. Not how easy would it be for me to do this or that. But God, what do you say? In our hour of temptation, as the enemy would often come to us to see, for us to gratify self, whatever that is, you just think about it. You know your life. You know your heart. You know where Satan tempts you to gratify self. 
What would it be easy for you to do to please a quick fix? Whatever it is, run to God's word. God's word is of more value. There's no human pleasure that, that matches the importance and the value of what God's word is for the Christian soul. We need to remember that. And we will overcome temptation through that means. Jesus used it. Jesus depended upon the word of God. Temptation number two is tempted to test God. We read that in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now this was a quote from Psalm 91, another scripture, but this scripture this time was being used by the enemy. We are given a little insight into another, another tactic of Satan that is so prominently used that he's often even in the church. The influence of the enemy, the influence of, of Satan, oftentimes through Christians, through so-called Christian ministries. And so we have to discern the spirits. That's what it tells us to, the scripture tells us to do. But Psalm 91 was all about God's protection. That's what the whole psalm was about. So Satan would pull a scripture out of context and say, aren't you supposed to be protected? Aren't you supposed to be safe in God's arms? Now, the interesting thing about him taking him to the pinnacle of the temple is the temple represented God's presence. So here he is taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, a place that represented God's presence among his people, and he's tempting Jesus to doubt the presence of God in his life. Is he really with you? Let's test him. Jump off. Now, Jesus is a human. Christ, at this time, was manifest in the flesh, fully human, fully God. But remember, he shed his power. He shed that glory, the supernatural. Jesus wasn't flying around. Let me just, we'll just put it that way. Yeah, he did not have wings. Had he jumped off of the, the building, he would have plummeted to his death. The angels probably would have caught him. All this stuff, think about this, yeah. He would have been taken care of royally. But so you see the, the, the temptation here. Why, why test God if you already know you're in his presence? If you already know who he is and what he's done for you, you have no need to test him. He could have. He could have jumped off. And it probably would have been a pretty cool scene. But he would have put his Lord God to the test. Something that the scripture says not to do. This temptation, it came with a twisted interpretation of truth. So watch out for that. Watch out for twisted interpretations of what the Bible says. There are plenty of people saying, here's what the scripture says. You have to know the whole counsel of God. Satan used God's word. It's not enough to just say, well, the ministry uses God's word. The ministry preaches the scriptures. Well, do they preach the whole counsel of God? Do they use God's word to interpret God's word? Or are they just pulling things out saying, here's what this means to us and here's what we can do because of this scripture? That's how Satan operated. That could be a satanic ministry. Just by the fact that they're using scripture does not mean it's whole, holy, God-blessed. It is not the case. And oftentimes it is not. So we must know the counsel of God's word, the whole counsel. He is 
our protector. But to test him is to distrust him. He is our protector. He was the protector of Christ and had a perfect plan for him. He would not die until that day where he gave his life on the cross. It was a perfect time. And God wasn't going to allow it to happen any other time. Jesus needed to trust that. And he did trust that. We need to trust his protection. We don't put him to the test. Know the whole counsel. Watch out for twisted scripture. Look at Jesus' response to the scripture that does not diminish the truth of Psalm 91. That is still a true scripture. And you should go back and read it. It is absolutely incredible. That entire psalm. You want comfort when you're worried? You want comfort when you feel like the enemy is closing in around you? Read Psalm 91. Read Psalm 91. But he doesn't diminish the truth of that. But what he does is he upholds the overarching view of Scripture that God is sovereign and can be trusted with our lives. God is sovereign and can be trusted with our lives. So when Jesus says, again, it is written. So you've told me what is written, but this is also written. And this is how you interpret Scripture. That's what Jesus is basically saying. You want to do a Bible study, Satan? Let me just show you how to interpret. Let's do some hermeneutics here, okay? Um, The proper interpretation of Scripture is that Scripture interprets, interprets Scripture. And he says this. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's only one area, I figured it'd be worth mentioning, only one area in all of Scripture where it, we are told to test God. I hope you know what that is. Maybe you don't. And if now you'll know is that it's out of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. If you just go back one book from Matthew into the Old Testament, I thought it'd be worth showing you. It's, it is interesting because the Scripture does say, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But there's one place where God himself, in a way, says, this is one area that I've set aside that I, will, I welcome you to test me. So, according to Scripture, this is one area. So let's just read it. Let's look at God's Word. We're governed by God's Word, not by feelings. So, Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Isn't that beautiful? Just that one area. I love that God gives us permission there. What is he, what is he really wanting us to do? He's, we're not testing, is he, we're not, we're not putting him to the test in the sense of a doubt. He's saying, I am a God who blesses. I have good things for you. Don't hold back from me. Why? Because you're robbing yourself. That's what that whole context was about. Don't rob yourself. Give, give to me. Give your life to me. Give everything to me. I will pour out a blessing. Don't you guys want that kind of a blessing where the windows of heaven are open and pouring out upon us? I do want that. So he was tempted to test God and he overcame. Why did Jesus not feel the need to test his father? Let me just say this one last thing. Why did he not feel the need to test his father? And it's because he knew him And his whole life was in his presence. His whole life was in his presence. If that's the case with us, let me just say, brothers and sisters, let this be the desire of your heart, that your life would be lived in the presence of God. Being in his presence, being in his word, being surrounded by him and his people, being so aware that he is with you that there's not a moment where you feel like you need to test him to see if he'll actually be there. 
because you're living your life in his presence. And if you're not doing that, and you're just kind of a, you know, you play it by ear, you feel like you need him today, you know, then I'll, I'll lean on him today. That's, that's not the way to, that's not, that's not the life of a Christian. And Christ is our example for that. So just be encouraged. There is, there is temptation that comes. We're tempted at times to test God. I'm sure you've all done it in a way. And I'm, I'm, I've done it in certain ways. God, are you really, do you really care for me? God, do you really, do you really love me that much? What about my family? What about all the sickness that's going around? Times where we're, we're caused to doubt the presence of the Lord. But we don't need to. Finally, third temptation. Tempted by the glory and pomp of what the world has to offer. Let's look at what it says. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The, the worst temptation of them all, save the worst for last, the hardest one, the one that was, had the most consequences. All right? This is a serious, serious temptation. Tempted, tempted by the glory and pomp of what the world has to offer. Have you ever been there? The glory of the world and the kingdoms of this earth, the success of the world, the success of worldly people. What about this would have been alluring. Why would Satan bring this as a temptation to the Son of God? Think about that for a moment. We know Jesus. We know who he is. Why would this be something that he brings to Christ? Now think about this. Had Jesus accepted this offer, you have to think about this very theoretically, hypothetically. Had Jesus accepted this offer, he would have never had to go to the cross and suffer. Because that is the means by which God had promised Christ the nations. is through the suffering that would come from the cross. And him winning for himself, purchasing for himself through his suffering, every nation, tribe, and tongue, people for himself, for his glory. But it, would, it had to come through suffering. Had he taken this, he could have avoided all of that. There's just one problem, and you probably figured it out. He is the Son of God. And he is sinless. Thank God. This was a shortcut to glory. Not not to be glorified through his death on the cross, but to be glorified just by simply receiving what Satan offers here. And that does give us a little insight into the power of our enemy and what he seems to control and where he seems to have some rule And I know that's a question oftentimes with Christians is where does Satan actually rule and what can he do in this world? Is he in charge? I know it often seems like he's in charge, but he's not. He's not in charge. Had he accepted this, he would have ceased to be God, something we know was not possible. But how foolish, I want you to see this, how foolish a request How prideful of our enemy. You see the pride? And that's how he's always been. A pride 
to be worshipped, to be the center. He's not satisfied with being worshipped by people. He wanted the worship of the Son of God. But he couldn't have it because Christ is king. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful over all of this? We're not worried about Satan. We're not worried about what he's... We, we understand the reality of Satan and the spiritual darkness that is around us. We understand that there are beings that we cannot see, and if we could see them, we would all be, we'd probably drop like dead if we could see the reality of the spiritual world. So just know that it's real. But what we need to know from this scripture is the power of God. And what we're being reminded of is the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. How prideful to think that the creator would worship the created. In, in Christ's mind, he's, I made you. You have no power over me. But again, willingly becoming human, to be tempted, to go through human feeling, human emotion, human struggle, and to there in that wilderness, in the place of hunger, willingly being hungry, seeking the Father, and feeling the temptation. I can't really work out all that in my mind. That's, that's something that's it's very, very, it's a big subject, right? Jesus was tempted in all points, yet without sin. And I've heard it said this, so I just want to share it with you. People have said, it would have been better if Jesus did deal with sin, because then I'd have somebody to relate to, because I deal with sin. That's backwards. We have a Savior who dealt with temptation as far as a human could without sinning. He's victorious over sin. He never sinned. That's who we need. We who sin need a Savior who's sinless, but has still suffered as a human and dealt with temptation. You understand that? That's the beauty of it. So thankful for that. And that's worldly thinking. That's worldly thinking. And oftentimes it's, it's in worldly counsel. You struggle with sin, so get around some other sinners who sin like you. That's how you get out of your sin. I've never seen that work really well. Support groups, they often, oh, they fail. Why? Because you're just getting around a bunch of other people who fail. It's one thing to have some relatability, but get yourself around people who are victorious, who are overcoming sin, and who is greater than Jesus Christ. Be in his presence. Seek him. Be desperate for him. Whatever freedom you need from sin, Christ is victorious. He overcame. And we see the motivation of our enemy to be worshipped. That's something we see prominently in our world today, is it not? A ceaseless, endless desire of our enemy to be worshipped. And people are worshipping him, for sure. And I know that's easy to see today. But I want you to see what's in the text. Christ did not worship him. Every offer from Satan is a deceptive proposal and cannot replace what God alone can give. Every offer from Satan. So think about it. What are you being offered? What have you been offered? What allurement, what enticement, what temptation have you been offered? None of it compares or can replace what God alone can give. It's always been the enemy's desire and his design to deceive with an offer and cause those who worship him to believe that they are being enlightened, that they are receiving the truth, that they are truly free, 
in the worship of Satan, but it's a lie. It's deceptive. Only Christ sets us free. Only Christ is worthy of worship. Only Christ brings light. Jesus responds, and his response, what does it prove? It proves his sovereignty. And this is important. It just, I want you to just picture the scene for a moment in your own mind, and then tell me what that looks like later, because we all picture it a little bit differently, right? But look at this. Jesus is there. The enemy takes him to the, a high mountain. The temple wasn't high enough. Let's just say that. That's not tall enough. And, and there's all kinds of speculation. What mountain was this? Or was this a physical thing? Did he take him? Uh, and there's all kinds of weird rabbit trails I won't mention. But let's just say the Roman Empire was enough. The power of the Roman Empire. The kingdoms of the world. Taking him to a high pinnacle. A high mountain. I'll give you all of this. If you just simply bow down and worship me. What did Jesus say to him? Be gone, Satan. What happens? <laughs> he tells him the word, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. He was gone. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The angels could have came and rescued him had he jumped off the temple. And I just love how the, the scene ends with the, the, the human, Jesus Christ, the God-man, being ministered to by God's angels. But he responds with sovereign power. Satan, be gone. And he leaves. But he also arms us with the tools to resist temptation. We have those tools. Every temptation should be seen as an assault from Satan, the father of lies, and handled with that ferocity. Be gone, Satan. I don't think Jesus said it lightly, politely. There was no please. Be gone, Satan. And it's not we. Listen, don't. We don't have the very power of Christ. We have Christ indwelling us. We have the Spirit. We have the Word of God. But we must be governed by God's Word. Okay? Even Michael the archangel did not contend with Satan. And Michael the archangel is far greater than us in power. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael the archangel. So any amount of Standing against the power of the enemy must be done in the name of Jesus Christ. You remember the story of the seven sons of Sceva during the time of Paul? And there was, a, there was an exorcist, right? And he, he sought to do the work. But these demons laughed in his face. They said, Paul, I know. But who are you? Jesus, I know, but who are you? It must be done in Christ's name. We don't have power over the enemy ourselves in our flesh. It's Christ in us. It's Christ and his victory. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a powerful scripture that we should all remember. And as we think about it, we think about Christ and his resistance of the enemy. How he said, be gone, Satan. We should be submitting ourselves to God. It's not just resist the devil and he will flee. What comes first? Submit to God. 
Don't expect to have any power over the enemy or over temptation in your life if you're not first submitted to God. I can't tell you how many times we, I talk to somebody or you maybe have, you've experienced too, I'm dealing with temptation, I'm struggling with temptation. Are you submitted to God? No, you will not overcome that temptation. You must submit to God. And I can't do it for you and you can't do it for anybody else. Submit yourself to God. Come under his authority. Obey his word. You will overcome temptation. Every temptation. He's provided a way of escape. Amen? He has done that. So that means submission to the word. Worship God and serve him only. That was God's word. He is the only one worthy to be served. So I'm going to serve him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to submit to him. And then let's just wrap it up with this. Turn over to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Maybe you've already been thinking about this. I wonder if he's going to talk about this because this is so, so connected. It's so important. We've already alluded to it a little bit. But Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Since we have a great high priest. Jesus overcame the temptation to self-gratify. Jesus overcame the temptation to test the Father. Jesus overcame the temptation of the pomp and the glory of the world and resisted the enemy. And in so doing, he proved the very anointing and sonship that the Father and the Spirit declared over him at his baptism. He proved that he was who he said he was and who God said he was, and he overcame all of that for us. Why? Because we can't. And he did it for us. There is a sense in which we trust and rely on the perfect life of Jesus while we go to him, trusting him for forgiveness of our sins. We trust him to forgive us. We trust him for his righteousness. And in doing that, leaning on his grace, we repent and we turn from sin. But in the very same breath, we say, thank you, God, for Christ living perfectly on my behalf and resisting every temptation that I could not resist perfectly. Thank you, Jesus. And because of all of this, you know what this means? We, weak, fleshly people, have hope and confidence before the throne of grace. Because of Jesus. Because he is our great high priest who was tempted in all points, who passed through the heavens, and he's in the heavens, so he's seated at the throne of the Father. He went through life perfectly fulfilled it all, is seated at the throne. Because of that, we, weak, fleshly people, can have hope and confidence. You know what that means? Confidence before the throne of a holy God. The one that 
had we not had the righteousness of Christ covering us, we would be obliterated at the throne of God. But we go there in confidence. That tells us we have access. Are you tempted? Do you have temptation? Are you dealing with sin? Are you struggling with life? Go to the throne. By faith, through Jesus, go to the throne. You have grace and help in your time of need. Christ proved that for us. Jesus did in his wilderness testing what Israel could not do in 40 years in the wilderness. Tested, tempted, constantly turning their back on God, worshiping idols, serving other gods. And Jesus, following that same imagery of fulfilling what Israel could not do and being the anointed king by the prophet, he then goes into the wilderness as Israel did, and he overcomes every temptation. He did it perfectly. We need him, New City Church. We need him. This text, this example, should at least, if you're honest with yourself, just to say, I need you, Christ. I can't do this without you. You are the Son of God. You alone have power over Satan. I need you. I want to just invite you to just confess that. As we go into a time of communion, you'll have some instruction in that to have some time to pray. Confess your need for him. Don't be so full of pride that you can't humble yourself and admit your great need. Jesus is is for us. He's for you. So let's confess that need this morning. The one who knew no sin, he knew no sin in temptation, he became sin for us at the cross that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin and he became sin for us. It was his choice to sacrifice himself in our place, to be our substitutionary atonement. If you don't know Christ, if you are in this room and you have not submitted to Christ, submit to him. Surrender to the the Son of God. Believe in him. He has power over Satan. If you don't choose Christ, by default you are worshiping Satan. Don't be fooled into think that you worship nobody. The age of the nons. I'm non-religious. No, you are the nons are worshiping Satan. But Christ is God. Christ is king. Praise God for his faithfulness and for his overcoming this temptation in the wilderness. Amen, church? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we desperately need, we need you. We need this word. So we thank you, God, for being sovereign over time and all circumstances to be here in this place hearing your word today. And so in our hour of temptation, in our need, Lord, God, Would you please break through our stony hearts and implant in us the the word of God and let it grow richly and produce fruit. Let us not be resistant to the the move and the work of your spirit or to how your word is calling us to change or to see you in a different light, to see you in a holy light, to see you as God of the universe creator of all things. Thank you, God, that we got to see today just a reminder of your power, 
but also your humanity while here on this earth. And that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So I pray that every weak Christian today would come boldly to the throne. Every week, struggling, bruised reed, that we would admit our sin, that we would admit our weaknesses and say, God, change me and use me. And wherever Satan or his, or his minions have had some sort of influence, I pray that in the name of Jesus we would resist submitting to God and that we would find that we are overcomers. I pray everyone who's struggling with temptation, whether that's because of finances or it's sexual sin, pornography, how they use their, their words, the successes of their job, pride, whatever it is, God, you know it and you are so faithful. Not only are you a God of truth, but you are, you are gentle. And so I pray that you would work in the lives of people in this room today, God. We thank you for your love. Thank you, God, for your throne of grace that we can come to now for help. Thank you for Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.